So Dr. Amon, um, that uh, you've already met, is uh, the head of our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy clinic. He actually is the new uh, chair of the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy guidelines, so um, you know that whatever he's going to tell you is going to be the most up-to-date and most pertinent for your patients. And he will give you an overview of all of the cardiomyopathies. Now, before we start, what we want to do is we want to do a number of questions to test your knowledge. So we'll go here with a 63-year-old woman with established restrictive cardiomyopathy, presents with increasing effort intolerance and dyspnea. She stops and rests after walking from the kitchen to the bedroom. So pretty symptomatic. She's on furosemide, she's on metoprolol, here is her physical examination with a heart rate of 60, blood pressure 105. Venous pressure is 10 centimeters with a rapid wide descent. Lungs are clear. She's got a third heart sound. What is the next best step in her management? Decrease the metoprolol, add low-dose lisinopril, increase furosemide or decrease furosemide? Okay, got some learning to do here, that's good. Next one. 36-year-old man, dyspnea on exertion over six months, symptoms are worse in warm environments and after meals. Echocardiography reveals left ventricular hypertrophy, septal thickness 24 millimeters, systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve is not noted. The carotid upstroke is brisk, lungs are clear. There's a two over six systolic ejection murmur that increases from squat to stand. What is the next best step? Cardiac MRI echo with provocation, hemodynamic cath, transesophageal echo. So he's got dyspnea, he's got hypertrophy, he does not have evidence of an outflow tract obstruction. Okay, go to the next one. 48-year-old man, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, received a defibrillator after having an out-of-hospital arrest. His wall thickness is 25 millimeters. He's got a dynamic left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. His gradient 64. He's active and asymptomatic. What would you advise regarding screening of his relatives? All adult first-degree relatives should have an echocardiogram once after age 25. Echoes recommended every two years in all first-degree relatives. First-degree relatives engaged in competitive athletics should be screened annually. A normal electrocardiogram is sufficient to exclude hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in family members. Hmm. Okay. Next. 64-year-old woman hypertension presents for the evaluation of nuance of dyspnea. She's got class two symptoms. Blood pressure is 118, pulse is 64. She's on amlodipine, metoprolol, and aspirin. An echo reveals hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, septal thickness 22 millimeters, or systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, moderate mitral regurgitation, 
and her outflow gradient is 50 millimeter of mercury at rest, increasing to 80 with Valsalva. What should you do as the first step? Discontinue amlodipine, increase metoprolol, septal myectomy, or septal ablation? Nice thick septum there. All right, Dr. Raman. ICDs considered the most appropriate for which of the following indications? Syncope seven years ago, outflow tract gradient greater than 90, wall thickness greater than 30, or gadolinium enhancement greater than 5% on MRI scanning. Okay. All right. So, as stated, um, we're going to call Dr. Amon up to the stage now to talk about the cardiomyopathies. Um, but he does have uh, probably the most knowledge about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy of near anybody in the United States. So I think you'll very much enjoy what he has to say about the restrictive, dilated, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathies. Steve? All right. Uh, thank you for that. I have no disclosures for this or any of the talks I give. Um, in your packets, you will see these learning objectives listed. Uh, and so I'll go through each of these uh, during this lecture. Um, to start off with is classification of cardiomyopathies. So there are genetic cardiomyopathies, some that have both genetic causes and idiopathic causes, and some that are acquired. Um, it, it's pretty apparent from the questions that you just took that we're going to focus most of my comments on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because it is a favorite disease about which test writers write questions. Um, there's a lot you can talk about genetics and sudden death and treatments and etc. So that's going to be the bulk of the questions, but we'll cover some of the others. Just remember when you're looking through stems of questions to think about some of the reversible causes of dilated cardiomyopathies, things like alcohol, things like sleep apnea. Remember that hemochromatosis is not an LVH cardiomyopathy, it's a dilated cardiomyopathy. So when you're looking at stems of questions, these should be things that start to trigger your thought processes and start to make word associations be between these things. But the boards do like you to search for reversible causes of LV dilatation so that you can appropriate select, appropriately select a therapy to take care of those conditions. And that's what this list is about, is just reminding you what to look for. Now, when we talk about non-dilated cardiomyopathies, we're getting into the restrictive cardiomyopathy uh, realm for the next few uh, sessions. And when you see images uh, that will be associated. They might be still frames or they might be uh, short clips of echoes. The thing to look for is this non-dilated ventricle with giant atria. And that is kind of the, the thing you need to have a quick association for. This person has restrictive physiology. Um, and so this is a classic example of someone with a massive left atrium. It's actually bigger than his left ventricle, but his walls are normal thickness, his EF is normal, and his ventricle is not dilated. This is a restrictive cardiomyopathy type patient. Echo people will get this. Those of you that don't work in the echo lab will see that these are the classic Doppler findings of someone with restrictive physiology. So the, the E wave, 
from the mitral inflow is super fast and the A wave is almost nothing. The atrium can't squeeze blood into the ventricle because it's already so full and tight. And so it's a rapid inflow, stops abruptly and the atrium doesn't contribute much. That's the classic uh, Doppler mitral inflow and you can see that on the left-hand panel. On the right-hand panel at the top is what the pulmonary veins look like. So there's very little flow in from the pulmonary veins in systole that rapid inflow in early diastole, but it uh, stops, stops abruptly. And on the bottom right is the tissue Doppler showing very reduced velocities. Again, normal for an adult is about 10 centimeters per second. That one there is showing you five centimeters per second. So the heart just doesn't recoil. It's a stiff heart that doesn't have that elastic recoil. And again, we'll have Dr. Borlaug talk about the management of HEFPEF uh, later this week. Restrictive cardiomyopathy has kind of these classic criteria that they talk about. In my session later on uh, today, when we talk about pericardial disease, we'll do a little distinction between restriction and constriction, but these are the things to remember. It's that rapid uh, downstroke here, short, quick uh, equilibration. Um, these criteria, I'll show some data before, the classic criteria for diagnosing restrictive hemodynamics they aren't that much, they aren't that useful in most instances, but it's worth knowing these for historical pur uh, purposes. When you talk about restrictive cardiomyopathies, you can think in broad categories. So there are myocardial causes like infiltrative diseases, things like amyloid, um, storage diseases, and then there's things that affect the endomyocardium, so hypereosinophilia, carcinoid, cancers, uh, those types of things. Again, just useful classifications. You won't have board questions about these types of things. The main thing is they might have a history of someone who uh, had an eosinophilic leukemia or something, and then you're gonna see images like I'll show you in a couple of slides, and you should be thinking that this is a hyper eosinophilic cardiomyopathy. Most of these, you know, they won't test you on storage diseases. That's, that's, uh, that's not part of adult cardiology for most of us. And those people have broad systemic syndromes that would be a part of it. And they want to know how to manage primary cardiac diseases in most cases. The treatment of restrictive cardiomyopathies is tough. It's not easy. So it's cautious diuresis because these people are dependent on their preload for their cardiac output. So if you go too far with the diuresis, they're just going to feel weak and puny and not be able to do very much because they don't have enough preload to drive the flow into their ventricle. Beta blockers are still used, but not as aggressively as we do in dilated cardiomyopathy. Remember if I, when I told you about how there's that early filling and then not much filling late in diastole, if you slow the heart rate down too much in someone with restrictive physiology, you're just limiting their cardiac output because they only fill in the first part of diastole. And so if they don't respond to some of these simple maneuvers, these are the patients that you're talking about early evaluation for cardiac transplantation. And again, there's a, a lecture on Wednesday about uh, transplant, LVAD, those types of things uh, for these types of patients. So some of the specific subtypes of, of restrictive cardiomyopathies that you should be able to recognize, just pattern recognition things. Again, amyloid is the classic one. So this is super thick walls. Um, has that kind of speckly appearance on the echocardiogram. The electrocardiogram is going to have normal or low volts despite this much wall thickness. That's your clue to something like amyloidosis. 
and we're, we're looking to see if we can't get a, a special lecture to go into the more of the details of cardiac amyloidosis on our online portion. Again, they won't test you on the vagaries of treatment of cardiac amyloidosis um, at this point because it's still uh, such an emerging uh, field of specialty, but it's good to know this pattern. This is the hyper-eosinophilia syndrome. So what you see is this kind of fuzzy stuff later on around the endomyocardium, typically in the apex of the ventricles, either the left or right ventricle. Sometimes it extends all the way down and impacts the mitral valve. If there are mobile elements to this, then we use anticoagulation to try to keep that from embolizing. If it's all just kind of socked in, then often those people are treated with chemotherapeutic agents like hydroxyurea, uh, steroids, those kind of things to try to calm this hyper-eosinophilia down. You should recognize arrhythmogenic RV dysplasia as this fatty replacement of the RV free wall. The diagnosis is really mostly electrocardiographic with really complicated criteria, but there is these imaging findings uh, seen really well on CT and MRI, but also in echocardiography, a big baggy RV. This is the histopathology. Um, you'll, again, on Monday, uh, hear some electrophysiolo uh, electrophysiology concerns for diagnosing RV dysplasia. Most of these patients need an ICD, and these patients aren't allowed to uh, participate in competitive athletics. Left ventricular non-compaction is another diagnosis that you might need to recognize for pattern recognition purposes. Uh, this is a pathologic specimen from our colleague, Dr. Edwards, uh, showing the non-compacted myocardium here. Uh, these are, this is another example where the non-compaction is actually hypertrophied as well, so pretty dramatic example. This is what a, an echocardiogram often looks like. You can kind of see these crypts and recesses, kind of a shaggy endocardial wall. If you use uh, echo contrast, that lights up uh, quite obviously. Cardiac MRI is probably the best way to image uh, non-compaction. What we're learning is this really is a spectrum of disease and not just a yes or no answer for most people. If they have symptoms, shortness of breath tends to be the main symptom. Um, these data are from uh, an imaging era about 10 to 15 years ago. And again, I think the vast majority of these people are now presenting as incidental findings when they've had an echocardiogram or MRI for another purpose. And most of the patients are not going to have advanced symptoms. The current literature, because of this kind of tip of the iceberg approach that we first saw patients who had the most severe forms, suggests these patients are at risk for LV dilation and or uh, sudden cardiac death. And the current recommendations from guidelines writing committees are that these patients are also discouraged from participating in competitive athletics. Treatment of this, uh, this is kind of my algorithm for how I approach patients with this if, they're, if they uh, are presenting. I first look at their systolic function. If their EF is normal, then you could consider treating them as stage B heart failure, i.e. those at risk for developing heart failure because they have structural heart disease, and you might consider adding a beta blocker or ACE inhibitor, although there is zero data in patients with non-compaction to say that it's definitely going to be an effective therapy. This is extrapolating what we've learned about beta blockers and ACE inhibitors from the other dilated cardiomyopathies. 
The other thing that's interesting is that anyone with left ventricular non-compaction is listed in the device-based therapy guidelines as having a class 2B indication for a defibrillator, meaning we don't know whether they're effective or not. Um, but it gives you the leeway if you've got someone who's had some kind of scary history, those types of things to consider adding a defibrillator. So the way I approach this is really, um, if they're class 2B for any patient with non, LV non-compaction, but if their EF is less than 35%, they qualify for a defibrillator based on the dilated cardiomyopathy guidelines anyway. If they have a family history of sudden cardiac death, non-sustained VT, or scary-sounding syncope, then that probably elevates them more likely to be the patients you want to put a defibrillator in. These are not called out in the guidelines, but these seem like a practical approach to how you would uh, face a patient with non-compaction. I don't think you would be asked this question other than perhaps someone with a really low EF, and you should either remember that their EF is less than 35 or they have non-compaction. It is reasonable for that patient to get a defibrillator. If they have a low EF, then you probably need to treat them uh, more aggressively as a heart failure type patient, and you probably want to consider adding anticoagulation, not necessarily warfarin, uh, but it could be warfarin, uh, just to prevent thromboembolic phenomenon from those crypsin recesses in their, uh, in their ventricle. Okay, we're now going to shift to talk about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Again, it's a favorite of question writers. So the first thing is diagnostics. When you see an imaging study with increased wall thickness, these are all the kind of things that should be going through your mind. The nice thing is, is that most of these things, particularly on the bottom part of that slide, would all have other clues in their history to this. Renal failure, neuropathies, ataxia, uh, those types of things to lead you down to more of these syndromic left ventricular hypertrophy causes. Um, Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is diagnosed when there's left ventricular hypertrophy out of proportion to any other explanation for it being present. So hypertension is common. You're going to hear from Dr. Pollock in a little bit about hypertension. But if they've got mild hypertension and massive wall thickness, that's not LVH from their hypertension. That's probably hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in most cases. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is present in one out of 500 people around the world. Uh, so it is also a common situation. We're often asked about athletes versus hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It is actually not that common that these two things overlap because it's really hard to train your heart thick. When people are competitive athletes training at a high level, they actually dilate their ventricles a little bit. They don't get thick walls very often. And when they do get thick walls, it's always about 15 or 16 millimeters. And the average patient we see with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has walls above 20. So there isn't that much overlap between these two. But what you really want to do is just look for other signs of pathology, and that's more likely a cardiomyopathic process. If all of their cardiac physiology looks normal or supernormal, then that's likely athletic training, particularly if the ventricle is a little dilated and the walls are just at the upper normal of thickness. This is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy at a cellular level. It's got these whirls, uh, the myofibular disarray. Uh, the hypertrophy can occur anywhere in the ventricle, not just septal hypertrophy, although that's the most common cause thing that we all see and the most common cause for symptoms. This is what we teach all of our patients that come to our clinic. One in 500 people have this. 
the overall prognosis is good. The average age of death of a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is only about six months less than the average age of death of the general population. So even though we have all these things we have to talk about, you have to tell your patients not to be living in fear of this. Yes, there's a sudden cardiac death rate. It's about 1% per year, and we'll talk about that in a few slides. Yes, it is genetic with an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, which means we need to talk about family screening. They can be healthy. They can participate in regular exercise as part of a healthy lifestyle. And all of our medications and all of our myectomies and ablations are symptom-relieving therapies. That's the reason why you do that. So they only need those drugs or those procedures if they have symptoms. If you have, I have many asymptomatic HCM patients who don't require therapies at all. They just need monitoring over time. So let's talk about some of these issues. We'll start with a case. This is a 26-year-old male I saw a number of years ago uh, who was short of breath uh, and having palpitations, particularly relevant to him because his father died at age 43, uh, who was a firefighter and died at the scene uh, of an ongoing uh, fire in front of the paramedics who couldn't revive him. So he's concerned about his symptoms. Some classic things you need to recognize in a physical examination. The first one is the carotid upstroke is brisk. You're going to hear this murmur that sounds like an AS murmur potentially, but you're going to feel their carotids, and they're going to have a normal carotid upstroke, whereas the AS patient's going to have the delayed and, and low volume pulse. If you feel their apex, you, you might feel two beats. What you're feeling is an S4. There's a bifid apical impulse. If they talk about a bifid apical impulse, start thinking HCM. Um, we talk a lot about the dynamic nature of murmurs, and we were all taught in medical school how you distinguish mitral regurg and aortic stenosis and those kind of things. Practically, HCM is the only murmur that really changes in most of our exam rooms. It's the one that's dynamic. Most of those other things, you have to be Bob Fry or Gene Braunwald or Nishimura to be able to understand that AS murmur changes a little bit when you have them do some of these murmurs. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the one that changes dramatically. They might not have a murmur at all when they're just sitting on your exam table and you have them stand up and all of a sudden they've got this grade three murmur. So it, go, it gets louder if they do valsalve maneuver because you're decreasing their preload. It gets louder if you have them go from squat to stand because you're decreasing both preload and afterload, which makes their gradient higher. And obviously, exercise makes it louder as well. So I often walk my patients in the hallway or up half a flight of stairs and, and listen to them there so I can see if their murmur comes out. Those are the physical exam clues to dynamic outflow tract obstruction. This is actually this patient's father's ECG. Uh, they had on file, but this is, I put this again for pattern recognition purposes. Uh, this is the classic ECG of apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, most patients with apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy don't have this ECG, but on board tests, they like to show you this and have you think of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy right away. So these deep, narrow T waves uh, think apical HCM. And it's a point, apical HCM is treated from a risk stratification standpoint just like any other HCM patient. Some of the therapies for symptoms are different, but the, but the risk stratification is the same in an apical HCM patient as in someone who has obstructive HCM. I mentioned that the walls can be thick anywhere or everywhere. Concentric hypertrophy is possible. 
Most of us are used to seeing these types here with asymmetric septal hypertrophy, uh, but just this week I saw a patient just like this with 30 millimeters of lateral wall hypertrophy, so it can happen anywhere. So let's talk about how we recommend family screening. As I mentioned, when it is genetic in a family, it is an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, which means 50% of the offspring, or each offspring of a patient with HCM has a 50-50 chance of getting the mutations responsible for HCM. Most of the mutations we know about, and there are at least 14, are associated with the cardiac sarcomere. What we don't know is how those mutations cause hypertrophy, why those mutations, which are everywhere in the heart, only cause hypertrophy asymmetrically in most patients. Um, and we also know that the mutations don't seem to portray any particular prognostic information in them, so really the genetics are useful only as a screening tool. As I mentioned, 14 different diagnose, uh, genes lead to HCM. The three most common are the ones at the top. Beta-myosin heavy chain, myosin binding protein C is actually the one where the, the, most of the mutations are at, and then cardiac troponin T is a distant third to the other two. The other ones are all one-off families mostly that have been described with this. We recommend that we start screening the children of an HCM patient when they hit adolescence. It's pretty rare though not impossible for single-digit-year-old children to display hypertrophy. But rather, you're going to screen someone at that age if they're not keeping up with their peers, they're not having normal development as a child, they're not physically active like their buddies are. Um, then that's a reason to screen. Since the screening is often an echocardiogram at that age, and if parents are super anxious, it's a, it's a zero-risk test. It doesn't hurt, it's just very low yield to screen at that age. So we usually start at the onset of adolescence, which is when we think most of the hypertrophy begins to happen. During adolescence, or when they are competing in sports, we screen them essentially annually. When they become adults uh, who aren't um, participating in sports, then we stretch that screening out to every five years if we're using imaging as our screening modality. Now, we can do genetic testing, as I mentioned, for this. And so we can send the blood off, see if the, see if the proband, the patient you're seeing, has one of the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy-associated mutations. And if they have a mutation, then that's the preferred way to screen the rest of their family. You just test their first-degree relatives and then chase any positives around the family tree. The problem is, is that 30 to 50 to 60% of patients who clearly have HCM phenotypically do not have a positive gene on our current testing panels because we don't know all of the genetic causes of HCM yet. Because of that, many insurance companies don't cover the cost of genetic testing, so there's out-of-pocket expense for many families. And so we, we think that every patient who is contemplating screening their family genetically should talk to a genetic counselor to talk about the pros and cons of screening, the potential financial outlays, and the chance of a non-helpful test result. But again, if a mutation is known in the proband, that is the preferred screening strategy. If it is not known, then we do use the imaging uh, algorithm I showed on the slide just before this. Next, how do we manage the symptoms in someone with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? So, again, there's this long-standing notion that patients with HCM shouldn't exert themselves. That's not true. You turn an HCM patient into a metabolic syndrome HCM patient, which is a bad combination to have. It's, it's really bad to have the two together. 
what they can do is they should be getting the same sort of exercise that the rest of us are supposed to get. Maybe avoid the extremes, but have them live an active lifestyle. Um, we do counsel particularly the obstructive patients that they need to hydrate. They need to maintain their preload, so they need to hydrate before, during, and after their exercise to avoid any risk of exercise-induced uh, presyncope or syncope. Um, this is the pathophysiology that results in symptoms of HCM. So almost everyone with HCM has some abnormality of diastolic function. The thick ventricle is stiffer, it doesn't relax as quick, so almost everyone has some abnormalities of ventricular filling. But 70% of patients also have outflow tract obstruction, either at rest or with simple provocation. This outflow tract obstruction causes the pressure in the ventricle to be higher, which leads to subendocardial ischemia, which makes the ventricle stiffer further, but also can cause just, you know, the ischemic syndromes. It causes the mitral valve to not behave normally, so mitral regurgitation is present, and it causes that outflow tract obstruction, so the downstream pressure is lower, stroke volume may be compromised. And this is why treatment of obstruction is such an attractive target for those who have it, because we can see some dramatic improvement in symptoms for patients who have outflow tract obstruction. Again, this is what happens with septal hypertrophy as the blood comes around the ventra on this thick bulge. It actually pushes this mitral valve into the outflow tract, narrowing that outflow tract and then causing this mitral regurgitation. Someone is defined as having obstructive physiology if they have a gradient of at least 30 at rest. They're called latent if it's less than 30 at rest and more than 30 with some provocation. We think that it takes a gradient of at least 40 to 50 to explain class three symptoms. So if you have someone who has no gradient at rest and it barely provokes to 30 and they can barely walk across the room, you should be looking for other causes of shortness of breath in that individual. The flip side is, if someone has a high gradient of more than 50, some of our patients are asymptomatic with that, and it's one of the mysteries of this is how some people seem to tolerate this and others don't. The other thing about symptoms in HCM, are they're quite variable. Patients with HCM will say they have good days and bad days. Some days they get short of breath walking from the lobby in here in the room, and other days they can do anything they want to do. And that's because this outflow tract obstruction is so dynamic. It changes all the time. It changes throughout the course of a, of a hemodynamic study in one of our labs. It changes based on how warm it is and they vasodilate, they'll be more obstructive. It changes based on when they last ate, how much sodium they've had, all those kind of things that affect preload, afterload, and contractility. So HCM patients as opposed to coronary patients or AS patients have more uh, evanescent symptoms. As I mentioned, the obstruction gets worse with increased contractility, decreased afterload, or decreased preload. All of these things happen with physical exertion. What that means practically is when you have a patient in the echo lab, that's probably when their gradient is lowest that day because their preload is maximized. They're laying down on your echo table and, and, and their gradient's actually higher when they leave the echo lab to go to their car. So the gradient you get in the echo lab is usually the lowest of the day, which is why we routinely do provocation for patients that are suspected of having HCM. Our sonographers will automatically do a valsalve maneuver and or, and or give amyl nitrite in our echo lab to see if we can provoke these gradients in patients who otherwise might not have one. If contractility, afterload, and preload are the things that make the obstruction worse, those are great targets for 
therapeutic intervention. So we avoid whipping the ventricle, we avoid pure vasodilators, and we avoid high-dose diuretics in these patients. The mainstays of therapy are beta blockers, the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers for rapamil or diltiazem, and in select cases, the addition of disapyramide, because these agents all decrease contractility, they slow the heart rate down, which prolongs the diastolic filling period, so therefore preload is maximized. Avoiding vasodilators. Many patients with mild hypertension are put on an ACE inhibitor or, or you know, something like that that's a pure vasodilator. That makes their outflow tract obstruction worse. I've taken patients from class three to class one simply by stopping a low-dose uh, ACE inhibitor because you get rid of that pure vasodilator effect. We judge the success of therapy based on how the patient feels, not based on what we measure in the echo lab or in the cath lab, because again, that gradient changes all the time. So what you want to know is, is the human being who has that gradient impacted by the gradient? So if the patient says, gosh, I can do more since you started me on the metoprolol, that's successful therapy. If they say they feel no better, or they feel worse since you started metoprolol, that is unsuccessful therapy. And so even in our practice where we have a high surgical success rate, so patients are sent here because they're felt, they have been felt to have failed medical therapy, you can see that almost two-thirds of the time our therapeutic intervention is optimization of their medications. And the patients will report they feel better, and then we're satisfied. If the patient doesn't feel better, that's when you increase your intensity of therapy and consider invasive procedures. So the indications for myectomy or the indications for ablation are the same. It's left ventricular outflow tract obstruction with symptoms that have not responded to medications. Same basic indications. Surgery's been around since about 1958. About 60 years this year we've been doing myectomy. It's a very safe procedure. The operative mortality is now less than half a percent, actually. The gradient is virtually abolished. Um, and patients are class one to two, 95% of the time following the operation, and they're glad they had the procedure. The bottom left shows a survival curve in blue following myectomy is equivalent to age-matched general population. On the right, the blue shows that following myectomy for those patients who already had a defibrillator, the appropriate ICD discharge rate is dramatically lower than what would be expected amongst patients with HCM. So the myectomy relieves symptoms, and that's the primary reason to do it, but it probably also impacts their survival. Again, HCM is fraught with the lack of randomized clinical trials because there just aren't enough patients for us to do these large studies, so these are all based on observational data. The indication for myectomy, the indication for ablation, remains symptoms and not life prolongation. As I mentioned, the indications for ablation are the same basic indications. What we know about this, we can't call ablation new anymore. It's been around since you know, the mid-1990s. Um, the gradient is reduced in those who respond. New York Heart Association class is improved in those who respond. The complications were initially a lot higher. They're getting a lot closer to that of myectomy. The one thing being uh, pacemaker rate is still 5 to 10% following ablation because the right bundle branch block is, is so, right bundle is so often compromised by having a septal ablation. And the mortality rates are very low. The issue is about 20% of patients won't respond to myectomy or to ablation because their coronary anatomy doesn't match right where we need to, to ablate uh, the myocardium. 
The other thing is there's about a 10% second procedure rate needed with ablation just because we want to use the minimal dose possible and so you don't want to ablate the whole septum, you want to do something, but about 10% of patients come, end up needing a second procedure if ablation is your initial strategy. Survival free from recurrent symptoms in all comers. In our institution on the left-hand side here is equivalent between myectomy and ablation, but you can see in the younger patients, myectomy has a slightly better durability than ablation does. It's probably because younger patients are being more active, uh, more aggressive with their physical activities, and so therefore testing the result a bit more. If you do a scorecard of the things that patients are worried about when they are considering procedures, uh, there are important advantages and disadvantages of each procedure, and you should be familiar with these. You will not be tested on these, nor do I think that anyone will write a question other than maybe me and my post-test question uh, that asks you to choose between myectomy and ablation. The one thing would be if they have left bundle branch block, if you're going to do an ablation, they have a 50 to 60% need for pacemaker after that. So if they have left bundle branch block on a pre-procedure ECG, ablation is almost going to almost certainly result in the need for a pacemaker. When we wrote the 2011 guidelines based on these types of data, these were the recommendations we made. For the vast majority of patients who have drug refractory symptoms, myectomy is the preferred strategy. Ablation is an acceptable alternative for those who didn't want to have an operation. If the patient isn't a surgical candidate because their comorbidities are so high or they're so frail, then ablation becomes the preferred strategy. So we'll shift now and talk about sudden cardiac deaths and selection of patients who might need an ICD. Clinically, this is the longest portion of a session with any patient is talking through this because it's a complicated uh, uh, situation. So again, 60 years ago when the first paper about HCM came out, it was uh, eight patients in an autopsy series. So it was 100% fatal before age 45 in the first publication. Now we know it's only 1% of patients each year, even slightly less than that, who have fatal arrhythmias, which is often enough that we have to worry about it, and infrequent enough that it's really confusing. Most people who have a sudden cardiac death in HCM won't have any of the risk factors. Uh, and that's just population statistics. These are the main risk factors that we now know uh, have maintained independent association with sudden cardiac death, those in the blue boxes. A family history of sudden cardiac death in first-degree relatives under the age of 45. Scary-sounding syncope, not vasovagal faints, not a postural faint, but a, but a really scary-sounding syncope episode in the last six months. When the syncope is remote, it doesn't seem to have any uh, prognostic information. Abnormal blood pressure response to exercise still exists there, although that's kind of falling off of most uh, algorithms. The thicker the heart, the higher the risk. And obviously, non-sustained ventricular tachycardia is a risk marker as well. The genetics don't seem to have any role. Outflow tract obstruction, the higher the gradient, there is a higher risk. But because that gradient changes every day, it's hard to assess someone's risk every 15 minutes and decide whether they're high risk now and low risk later on or not. So it's not, it doesn't, it's not a durable risk factor. 
And then the fibrosis or scarring, the cardiac MRI does have important prognostic information. If we see more than 15 to 20% of the myocardium replaced by scar, that's a very high risk individual. Um, less than that, uh, there's not as much independent prediction, but if they have no scarring, that's a good sign in a patient. So the way the guidelines read now are that if a patient has a clinical event, they have a class one indication for an ICD. If they have a family history of sudden cardiac death, massive hypertrophy, or recent scary syncope, that's a class 2A indication for an ICD. If they just have non-sustained VT, because three beats counts as having non-sustained VT, and that, that's a little weak to put in an ICD, that's kind of class 2B, unless they have these other risk modifiers present. And by that, I mean the younger the patient with non-sustained VT, the higher the risk. So if you have a 19-year-old with three or five beats in non-sustained VT, that's a pretty risky individual, actually. If they have wall thickness that's not quite over 30, they're at 28, 29, you know academically that there's no difference between 28 millimeters and 31 millimeters in terms of risk. So if they have non-sustained VT in a ventricle that's 28 millimeters, that's a pretty high-risk individual. That's a class 2A indication. If they don't have any of these risk markers, then it's class 3. There is the European Society of Cardiology Sudden Cardiac Death Risk Calculator. I do use the ACC algorithm, which I just promoted there, and I use this calculator to help patients understand their overall risk. I primarily focus on that top box, which gives you a five-year risk assessment because patients come to us thinking they have a 25% or 50% chance of dying suddenly in the next couple of years. They're scared, and when we can plug in their demographics and numbers here and say, well, your risk at five years is you know, 4.5%, that in itself is reassuring. They don't think they're likely to die. Now they're doing their risk tolerance assessment. You will not be asked to use this on the, on the ABIM exam uh, here. I also don't think that um, this ESC recommendation box here is particularly helpful because it uses arbitrary cutoff values of 4 and 6% to determine whether someone should get a device or not. It's kind of up to the individual whether 6% sounds scary to them or reassuring to them because different people view that number differently. Many people view that as a 94% chance of nothing happening in the next five years, and they feel great about that. So I use it to set the context, the stage, uh, of where their risk is. It's not 50%, it's not 25%, and almost everyone it's less than 10%. Uh, and so that's helpful for the patients. But I use the, a the ACC criteria are what you will be tested on an ABIM, and it's still a very useful clinical tool. The tools actually agree with each other in the vast majority of patients. You rarely find conflict. So to wrap up this didactic portion of the talk, remember that the HCM gradient, murmur, and symptoms are present with exercise, Valsalva or squat to stand maneuver, Beta blockers, verapamil, or diltiazem are the first-line therapies for people with symptomatic obstructive HCM. And we use ICDs only for patients with family history of sudden cardiac death, massive hypertrophy, scary faints, and non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. Thank you very much. Very nice, Dr. Amon. Um, you'll see that um, he, he sets the stage for the fact you get a very complicated 
type of a disease like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in which there's about 3,500 articles that are written. But what Steve's done is he's condensed it all down and given you, and Paul says it's simplified, but on the other hand, it gives us the type of approach that we need to be able to take care of our patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So very well done. Now, let's go back to the questions. And while we're doing the questions, there were a number of comments that came in from the audience on your portals. So if you have more questions, put them in on the portal, but we'll try to answer all of those as we go along. So let's go back to the 63-year-old woman with established restrictive cardiomyopathy presents with increasing effort intolerance and dyspnea. She has to stop and rest after just walking from the kitchen to the bedroom. She's on these medications. She's got this examination. Now, what is the best step in her management now? She's pretty symptomatic. She's got this examination. She's on furosemide and metoprolol. Okay. okay, so 54% got what I think is the right answer here, which means 46% didn't. <laughs> um, do we have the, how they voted pre? So let's go, let's go through this then. So a couple of things. So obviously we're talking about changing medications. Um, not many of you chose to add lisinopril. I, I did make that point during the lecture. It's not really one of the standard therapies for someone with restrictive cardiomyopathy. And you can already see this person's blood pressure is relatively low. Uh, so that's not likely going to make a big uh, difference for them. Increasing ferrosamide, uh, the lungs are clear and the JVP isn't that high in this case. Remember when you're reading the stems of the question on the boards, if you're talking about treating heart failure, if you're gonna do something directed at congestion, make sure there's some evidence of congestion that you're gonna treat, and this person doesn't have it, so increasing the Lasix is probably not gonna be helpful. Uh, there isn't any evidence here of why you would wanna, if I'd given you creatinins and, and BUNs and those kind of things to show they were over dehydrated uh, with their Lasix and you would do that, which leaves us with decreasing the metoprolol, metoprolol dose. And, and the reason to do that, again, as I mentioned, is how the heart rate impacts diastole and diastolic filling. So when you look at the cardiac cycle, when you go from a slow heart rate to a fast heart rate, the systolic ejection period stays pretty constant. So that means that when you go to a faster heart rate, the main thing that happens is you shorten the time for diastolic filling. You can use that when you're treating patients. So if someone has a fast heart rate versus a slow heart rate, if they have grade one diastolic dysfunction or mild diastolic dysfunction, slowing their heart rate down actually gives them more filling. It allows them to maximize their preload and they can get more cardiac output from that. That's why we want to slow the heart rates down in patients with hypertension and you know, class two symptoms, et cetera. But if you already have restrictive filling where nothing happens in terms of filling after the first 150 milliseconds of diastole, if you slow the heart rate down, all you're doing is increasing the time the patient's heart isn't doing anything at all. It's not filling, it's not contracting, you're limiting their cardiac output. 
So if you have someone who has truly restrictive filling pattern, if you back off on their beta blocker a little bit, you can actually increase their cardiac output a little bit, and sometimes they'll feel better, even if the heart rate just increases by 10 beats per minute or so. So remember that kind of physiologic uh, situation with the effects of heart rate on diastole. Now, there were um, quite a few questions on differentiating restrictive cardiomyopathy from constrictive pericarditis, but you're going to... We're going to do that uh, in the session at the end of the morning. Yeah, so yep. the, the, this whole thing that, uh, you, you know, using your Doppler velocities and respirometer, Steve's going to be covering uh, at the 11 o'clock lecture this yep. morning. Yep. Um, in the other cardiomyopathies, a couple questions came up about non-compaction. Yeah. Um, anticoagulation, do you anticoagulate them? If you do, what do you do it with? So on and so forth. Yeah, so I, I, I don't routinely anticoagulate unless they've got a history of a thromboembolic phenomenon or if their EF is low, really low. Uh, and in those cases, um, we classically were taught to use warfarin, but I don't think there's any reason why the, the direct-acting anticoagulants wouldn't be a reasonable choice. So low EF or any history of thromboembolic phenomena would be a reason to anticoagulate. And, and then also for the low EF, what, do you have a cutoff to use a defibrillator in non-compaction, or how, how, how do you do that? I would say less than 35% is reasonable. Let's go to the next question. 36-year-old man presents with dyspnea on exertion over the past six months. Symptoms are worse in warm environments following meals. The echo reveals LVH with a septal thickness of 24 without evidence of outflow tract obstruction. He's got a murmur, increases from squat to stand. Which of the following is the next best step? They did pretty well on this question before the lecture. They didn't do too bad. I hope yeah. they don't do worse. Oh. Better. Good. Wait, wait. So, okay. So what you get to do is I heard some round of applause. Yeah. Now, if you get 95% or better on an answer and it's correct, you can give yourself a round of applause. So. Now, what would you do next then? If they, if they have a gradient on, on provocation, yeah. how do you pro Right, oh. so, so if they have a gradient that's uh, you know, 40 or more, then you're gonna start your beta blocker or your calcium channel blocker as a first line of therapy because this person has shortness of breath. And that's the reason for doing the provocation. Up until now, you suspect it based on your physical examination, but you have no documentation. If they, didn't, if they only had a mild gradient and this person complained of shortness of breath, the gradient was only 30, in the echo lab with Valsalva or Amyl or something, or with exercise, then that's when you want to look for another cause for the shortness of breath, because that gradient isn't enough to explain why a 36-year-old should be short of breath. And you said Valsalva or Amyl or exercise. Yeah. Is there a protocol that you use to... Yeah, in our, in our lab, we have a, a, a sonographer-driven protocol where they, the resting echo, was, if the indication is HCM, the sonographer will automatically do a Valsalva, and if they don't get a gradient at rest or with Valsalva of at least 50, then they call in uh, one of the nurses to administer amyl nitrate and do it there. Um, doing an exercise echocardiogram is a perfectly, it's a great way to, to assess it. It's just we have this rapid protocol in our echo lab to get it done. If we didn't have that or if that study was negative and this person came in, then I would do an exercise stress echo to look for the grading because it is the most physiologic form of provocation. Um, but we, we happen to have this rapid pathway in our lab that, that works really well for us. We actually diagnose 95% of our obstructive patients with that pathway in our lab. 
And, and when you say look for obstruction, are you talking about the velocity or are you mm. talking about systolic anterior motion or both? You, ha or you have to show both. So the typical late peaking dagger signal of dynamic outflow tract obstruction, you want to show that, but that can happen from other situations. If the, if the heart gets super hyperdynamic and the whole ventricle is just obliterated and systole, you can still see that late peaking signal. So you have to show systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve in addition to that late peaking signal to truly know it's outflow tract obstruction. And, and our surgeons will insist on seeing SAM before they do an operation because yep. they've been caught by what Steve said. You get the CW that's, that's very high velocity, but it turns out to be maybe MR that's contaminating things or this very hyperdynamic ventricle. Okay, next question. 48-year-old man presents with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, received a defibrillator after an out-of-hospital arrest. Maximal wall thickness is 25. He's got an outflow tract obstruction with a peak gradient of 64, active and asymptomatic. What would you advise regarding screening his relatives? So this is very important because it's kind of the basic underlying principles that you have to discuss with your patients who come in with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Okay, so all first-degree relatives once, echo every two years, first-degree relatives in competitive athletics, screened annually, and a normal electrocardiogram sufficient to exclude hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in family members. Yep. The 81% are, are correct. Um, those who chose B, it's really every five years is our recommendation for adult first-degree relatives. Every year is probably not a, every other year, it probably wouldn't be much uh, growth in that time period. Um, so 81% are correct. And a question that came in from the portal, is there an age limit beyond which you yeah. don't screen anymore? If, if a person has had two or three or four normal echocardiograms and they're in their mid-60s, you probably don't have to keep going, but there are several case reports of people who had normal echocardiograms who had sufficient LVH to be diagnostic in their mid-60s, so they have to have multiple echoes with no change, and if they get to the kind of middle age range, then you can stop at that point. Okay, and then another question that came up from the portal, one of the reasons to screen is to give them some exercise limitations, what, if they have it, yeah. even if they're asymptomatic. What do you tell them about exercise? That there were like two or three yeah. people who want to know about. So, so there's emerging data that shows that uh, exercise, even athletic competition, may not be as risky as we once believed. It's new data, we still have to sort through it a little bit, but what we usually tell our patients is that they can do light to moderate exercise. I generally counsel them against super high intensity interval training, uh, power lifting, those kind of things, although there is a trial being started looking at HIT, high intensity interval training in HCM patients but I counsel them against the extremes of effort or the extremes of exposure, and light to moderate exercise is generally what we talk about. Yeah, so Gersh says, if they can carry on a conversation, they're doing okay, but once they get too short of breath, they're probably doing too much, do you? I, th I think that's a good guideline. Again, since most of our patients that we see, no matter their diagnosis, aren't doing any exercise, that's a good place to start. Okay. 
And then an another question about this is um, defibrillators and athletics. Yeah, so there was the publication this past year, again, it will not be on your board examination, but there is evidence that those who have ICDs do not have an excess rate of ICD shocks or complications from their ICD if they choose to be active. Okay, next question. 64-year-old woman, hypertension, evaluate for new onset of dyspnea, class two symptoms. Blood pressure is 118, pulse is 64, she's on amlodipine 10, metoprolol 25 twice a day and an aspirin. She has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a dynamic outflow tract obstruction. Goes up to 80 millimeter of mercury with Valsalva. What would you recommend for her? Stop the amlodipine, increase the metoprolol, septomyectomy or septal ablation. Exactly right. So get rid of that vasodilator. Um, if, her, if her blood pressure comes up and it's uncontrolled, then you can switch her to diltiazem or verapamil if you want to stay in the calcium channel family, um, or you can use a beta blocker. But um, that would be the first step, is getting rid of the offensive medication before you start doing other things that are more aggressive or adding more medications to her list. And, and since you said a number of times that the indication for septal reduction therapy our symptoms. Can you tell the audience, do you have the data on how many people come to us for septal reduction therapy that we end up treating medically and they actually do okay? So our initial therapy in two-thirds of our patients is medication adjustment. I would say that ultimately probably half of those come back and get uh, septal reduction therapy. So again, paying attention to their medications uh, and hydration uh, makes a lot of difference for a lot of patients. Yeah, it really does. Okay, last question. ICD considered most appropriate for which of the following? Syncope seven years ago, outflow tract gradient greater than 90, wall thickness greater than 30, or GAD enhancement greater than 5%. Uh, it's not 95. No, no, no. It's, it's, uh, really, it's really, really good, but it's not applause worthy. Yeah. Sorry. It's disappointing. <laughs> um, but that is the right answer. So, anything else you want to say about ICD implantation? No. The, this shared decision making, though. I yeah, mean, yeah. What, what, just say a couple words on that. So shared decision-making is the concept that we don't just tell people that because you have X percent risk, you must get a defibrillator, or because you have this risk marker, you must get a defibrillator. Patients get to choose what, what happens to their own bodies and their own care. Now, that means it's a conversation. You don't just tell them, well, that's your risk. You, you let me know what you think about it. It means it's a long conversation. It doesn't mean abdicating your responsibility as a counselor or a mentor to your patients to ha understand what other patients like them might have chosen. Um, so it's, it, it's a harder way to practice than being dogmatic and paternalistic but patients actually really like it because then they have participated in the decision and they uh, own that decision with you. So you frame the conversation for them, you coach them through the decision, but they get a say in what goes on with these things because again, most people uh, who have risk factors won't have a sudden cardiac death. Most defibrillators who put in never do anything to the patient. 
way more complications than lives saved, but then it's lives saved. And so it really comes down to that patient's wishes, but it's, it does take a long time in the office to do that conversation, but it is the right way to, to be a doctor.